Hey, welcome to another episode of the How I Learn series podcast. The story you're about to hear is from Susan Piver. Susan is the best-selling author of six books, including The Hard Questions and The Wisdom of a Broken Heart. This is a great story she told um, in June of 2012, and the topic was How I Learned It's Complicated. Here's Susan Piver. Enjoy. So I am very happy and excited to have this chance to tell you a story about how I learned something complicated. There are three elements to my story. The blues, drugs, and the Buddha Dharma. And I hope it will be sufficiently complex. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll start with the third element, the Buddha Dharma. I've been a student of Buddhism for 17 years and, if I may say, a fairly serious student, which means I've done a lot of meditation, a lot of study of the Dharma and the view behind meditation, and a lot of meditation retreats, sometimes for months at a time. And one thing that I became very enamored of, one of the teachings that I became very enamored of, that I was kind of surprised to learn was connected to Buddhism, are teachings on fearlessness, how to be fearless, how to live your life and not anyone else's. And um, I thought about this a lot. How do you do that? How would a person come to be fearless? Now here, fearlessness means letting down your guard, opening your heart and your mind, and letting the world touch you by being present to what is happening around you. And how do you do this? So um, a place to start is by examining what your mind is doing like 99.99999% of the time besides that. And it's doing one of two things. And this is according to the Buddha. It's either focused on things that might hurt you and guarding against them, or fear, or searching anxiously, desperately for things that might make you happy, and then trying to clutch them when you find them, hope. And when your mind is able to let go of fear and hope, the path to enlightenment, as I have heard, opens up before you. So, I thought about this a lot. I tried to practice it. I read about it. I even wrote a book about it called How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life. Um, But the thing that drove home to me most clearly, the meaning of this no hope, no fear way of being, um, did not come from reading, did not come from meditation. It came, it happened one night in a bar. (laughs) And drugs were involved. So, um, my story takes place in the olden days when blues giants still roamed the earth. Your Albert Collinses, your Albert Kings, your John Lee Hookers, um, and so forth. And the drug ecstasy was still legal. So it was very pure in this time, otherwise known as the mid 80s. And at this time, I lived in Austin, Texas, and I was a cocktail waitress at a blues bar called Antone's. 
Austin's home of the blues. But this was no ordinary blues bar. It was owned by this man named Clifford Antone, who had a lot of money obtained through nefarious and time-honored means. <laughs> and he sunk every penny he ever made into this music, to establishing this club, to finding his idols, the people I mentioned, but also Otis Rush, Buddy Guy, Jam Jimmy Rogers, Eddie Taylor, Junior Wells, on and on and on. And he brought them to Austin, first class. And he put them up in hotels, first class. And he found the most amazing vintage amps for them to play through, vintage Fender reverbs and super reverbs. And he collected amazing, beautiful vintage guitars that he just handed to them. Beautiful hollow body Gibsons for the Chicago guys, because that's what they liked. And beautiful solid body Fender Stratocasters and Telecasters and even broadcasters only made for one year, gave them to them. But his ultimate expression of worship, his most righteous gesture of admiration and respect was he assembled a house band of the highest caliber to back up his idols because he could not tolerate the idea that they would come to town with like their college kid pickup band. He wanted like real musicians who knew this music to back them up and they were on the payroll and they played every night. And in this band were two guitar players and one of them was my boyfriend. <laughs> and he was and is an incredible guitar player in exactly the style that I like, meaning no frills, not a lot of notes, completely soulful, like find the heart of the groove, set up camp, and stay there. And that's what he could do. He was so cool, and he was my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so on one particular night, Clifford had found this blues guy named Memphis Slim, and he brought him to Texas. Memphis Slim was a jump blues piano player who recorded like way back in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and then sort of dropped off the map because in 1962, he moved to Paris, which if I was a six foot four tall black man in the 60s, I probably would have done that too. And he sort of fell off our radar screen, but he made a good life uh, gigging in Europe, which was awesome. Clifford found him, flew him to Austin. And further, he found the guitar player who recorded with him in the 50s, Matt Guitar Murphy, and brought him to Austin too. And the night he was playing, I was off. I didn't have to work. So I came in, I got there early. I came in through the back door. I got my favorite seat, which was stage left, where I could see the musicians walking up to the stage. It was right by the steps. And then I also had this angle where I could see them. I could see all of them playing. I could see how they looked at each other. I could see how they signaled each other and talked to each other. And settled down, reached in my bag, took out some ecstasy, and swallowed it. And by this time, the club is full. People are milling around. People, and everybody who walked by me was like, Susan, hey. Wow, great to see you. You're not working. You look fantastic. <laughs> Kisses, hugs, and I'm like, this is awesome. Uh, I'm in this room full of people who, like, they really like me. And you know what? I really like them. In fact, I fucking love them. <laughs> I love that person. I love that person. I love those guys. 
And I'm just, my sense of good, of well-being is just amping up and amping up. And then the music started. And it was insane. It was perfect. And you could see Matt, Matt Murphy and Memphis Slim, the joy that they had in playing together. It makes me even choke up a little bit to think about it. Because it's like finding your old friend and just being able to be with them again. And the band, the house band, was amazing. And my boyfriend was doing a fantastic job. He knew every chord progression. He knew every full stop. He knew when to fill. And he knew when to lay back which is a highly underrated skill in the music world. And every once in a while, he'd look at me and he'd wave and wink. And I'm like, this is amazing. And my sense of well-being is rising and rising and rising. And this incredible sense of, again, what I can only call well-being was like, it took over my being. And I was like, why can't I feel like this all the time? You know. Harold's many drug addictions, but anyway, I did not become a drug addict. <laughs> Why can't I feel like this all the time? And if this is part of the human repertoire, why would you choose anything else? So at that exact moment, this sounds kind of strange, it's like my consciousness ejected from my body. And suddenly I was looking down on myself. And I could see that growing out of one side of my head, was an antenna. <laughs> and it unfolded and unfolded and unfolded and unfolded into the stratosphere. And what it was doing was trolling for things that might hurt me. And not just this room, and not just this, these people, but the whole universe. It was working all the time. It was a kind of primordial vigilance. And I realized it had been there my whole life. And growing out of the other side of my head, another exactly identical antenna reaching up and up and up into infinity. And what was it doing? It was searching for things that might make me happy and trying to grab them and hold them to me. And as soon as I sort of got this picture, something amazing happened. They both dropped off. They just crumbled and were gone. And I had this glimpse of what it's like to suddenly have no fear and no hope. And for the first time in my life, I was completely unafraid. And you might ask yourself, if you're not spending your time in fear and you're not spending your time in hope, what else is there? So I'll tell you what I learned, and it's complicated, but it's very simple. When there's no hope and there's no fear, there's only one thing left, and that is exactly what was right there one moment ago, the present moment. And it is all that there is, and what I learned is that it is identical to ecstasy. <laughs> and that's my story. Thanks. The How I Learn series is created, produced, and hosted by me, Blaze Allison Kearsley, and the podcast is produced by Lyra Smith. 
For more podcasts and to learn more about upcoming shows, visit www.howilearnseries.com. And that's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the How I Learn Series podcast. Thanks for listening.